Luke 5, 1 to 11. Jesus calls his first disciples. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Genesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signalled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. But he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. Fantastic. Thank you very much, James. Yeah, so Luke 5, 1 to 11. This is quite a well-known story. You know, most people may know the story of the calling of disciples. They're out fishing and suddenly Jesus calls them. They leave their boats and follow him. So today, especially, we're looking at partners and partnership. Friendships and relationships is critical to how we're meant to live. I mean, we've seen over the last four months how that shift from, you know, constant physical social interaction has been stripped back and we've been forced to find, you know, other ways to interact with people. And it's felt quite weird not being able to have that kind of normal day-to-day contact. So this led me to think about kind of this passage and what was going through Jesus's head, you know, when he was calling his disciples. So if, say, you were assigned to a group project, you were assigned as the group leader and you had to pick a team of a handful of people um, from your class, what characteristics would you look for in this team? What kind of people would you want working for you and with you? I'd want some chatty people so I didn't get bored. Good communication skills. Yeah. Anything else? People that are motivated. Yeah. Being confident. Yeah. Okay, one more thing, just from someone. Considerate, maybe. So just people's ideas, understanding them, and then maybe compromising, things like that. Yeah, very nice. Was someone else speaking there, or did I imagine that? Oh, yeah, no, it's fine. I was just saying, um, like, hardworking, similar to motivation thing. Okay, yeah, perfect. So we've got all these kind of characteristics and traits that you would, that you'd want to pick when you're choosing a team. And you wonder whether Jesus was actually kind of, when he was going around calling his disciples, whether he had something similar in mind. And obviously Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He has been spoken about all through the Old Testament, all through the Jewish scriptures. And it was expected that he would kind of hang with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, teachers of the law, because that was just kind of seen as what, you know, he, quotes should do. But in reality, we see here that Jesus doesn't conform to the social expectations of him. He chooses to spend his time with fishermen, with tax collectors, with sinners, rather than these proper, quotes religious leaders. And this directly links to Romans 12, 2, Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, where it reads, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this is quite a challenge to us because in a society where we all just want to fit in, to kind of just pass by under the radar, we don't really want to stand out. It's quite eye-opening to remember actually that 
we're called to live in this world, yes, but we're also called to live apart from this world and to show the difference that Christ can make in our lives. So now if we return back to this passage, the key word throughout this is partnership. And that word actually kind of transcends um, the whole of the New Testament, this concept of partnership. You've got this level of intimacy and a relationship between the two bodies involved. And this translates quite easily into Jesus and his disciples. So we can see here that Jesus isn't looking for anyone fancy. He's just looking for ordinary people. But the good news is that these ordinary people can do extraordinary things because they partner with an extraordinary God. So you can almost imagine the scene. You've got Lake Galilee, also called Gennesaret, which translates to harp-shaped in Greek. And you've got Simon, or also called Peter later on, but Luke being very particular with his history, he actually calls Peter Simon up until chapter 6, when Jesus renames him as Peter. So we can see that Jesus is here, he's in the boats with them, and they're kind of just out from the lake shore. And you've got Peter and his friends, they co-owned a fishing business with the brothers, James and John, and a couple of other people there, a couple of other hired men. Um, so yeah, we can see in verse 10, you've got James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And the actual Greek word for partners is poinonia, which is one of the most important words in the New Testament. It's seen throughout the Gospels and throughout Paul's letters, especially in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, which is one of the most essential passages of the New Testament. And it's talking about how we as Christians must respond to the Holy Trinity, so to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And Paul gives us three ways to do this. So the first is the love of God. And this is essential because salvation starts with God. We cannot earn it. We can't win it. It's not like, oh, if I live a super good life, then you know, God will love me. No, it's, it's this fact that ultimately we do not deserve God's love. There's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that we could have done or will ever be able to do. But it's out of his profound grace that he gives us salvation and he pours out his love onto us. The second part of how we must respond to the Trinity is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This adoption into sonship or daughtership with the living God is only made possible through what was done by Jesus on the cross, through his brutal death, the perfect sacrifice for all of our sins. We have been atoned and forgiven. And because of that, Jesus has broken down the barriers, which stops us having that relationship with God. And then the third part, this idea of partnership, partnership with the Holy Spirit. And this is key to understanding the Trinity and understanding how Christianity really works, because you have this idea salvation starts with God. It comes to us through Jesus, the son, and that is active within us through the Holy Spirit. And yeah, this partnership with the Holy Spirit was clearly shown through the early church. But it's not some archaic partnership that was only available back in first, second century B.C., the best thing is that this partnership is active today. It's for us today. Anyone can have access to it. You know, seen in Acts 2.38, when Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he's preaching to this crowd of thousands of people. And he says, look, all you have to do is believe, repent and be baptized and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. So if we're looking at Luke's gospel, obviously we know it was written by Luke. He was a doctor. He was a historian. 
very meticulous with his facts. And because of this, it's totally chronological, which is why it actually differs in some aspects from Matthew and Mark. Certain events are portrayed in different orders in the different Gospels. Basically, Matthew and Mark group their gospel by theme, whereas Luke's is chronological. And that's where you get the reference to Peter, um, but he's called Simon before chapter six. The idea of Luke's gospel is that he, yes, it is chronological, but he also, he's writing with a purpose, obviously. And because of that, he omits Jesus' Galilean ministry, which is where Peter or Simon would have first met Jesus. So we know from the other Gospels that Peter had been along to some of Jesus' teaching. He yeah, kind of knew a bit what he was about. In actual fact, Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law and he kind of used Peter's house as a base of operation. And actually Peter's brother, Andrew, introduced Peter to Jesus. There's this idea that Peter can identify that there's something different about this man. He's not like any other teacher of the law or Pharisee or rabbi or religious leader. He speaks with such power and authority that hasn't been heard for 400 years due to the period of silence between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament. And Peter identifies this. And I think that's the reasoning for his profound trust in Jesus in this passage. Yeah, so the idea of Jesus calling his disciples was to create a team of partners uh, through which the gospel could reach the whole world, through which the good news could spread to all nations. And we see here in this passage that Jesus steps into Peter's story to invite Peter to step back into his. There's this kind of concept of bridge building, I guess, that Jesus isn't standing at a distance. He's not saying, oh, Peter, come over here. When it says that Jesus is in the boat, he's not standing on the shore and Peter's over here. We've got Peter and Jesus. And Jesus is like, look, trust me, go out into deep water, get some fish, and then don't be afraid from now on you'll fish for people. Jesus is stepping into Peter's life and inviting him back. It's this idea of partnership. And this can be applied to spreading the gospel and sharing the gospel and was employed by the early church. This idea of asking questions, finding out where people are at, and then showing them that Jesus is the answer that the gospel is what they need. Obviously not changing the gospel um, because it is divinely inspired, but just applying it in ways that people understand. That's done throughout the book of Acts and all the you know subsequent letters. One example that springs to mind is Paul. He goes to Athens and he is shocked basically by you know the amount of gods that they're worshipping, what they're getting up to. Basically he's just like, okay, this is something else but instead of preaching you know fire and brimstone divine retribution whatever he takes the gospel to them and he he opens by talking to the people and he says something like i can see that you are very religious which is just kind of a way of beginning to engage them and then he goes on to talk about how there's an altar in the corner to an unknown god and actually this unknown god is the god he is the creator god and from there he begins to uh, preach the gospel and address any issues but yeah, there's this concept that Jesus is walking with the men in the boats. He's not stood afar. He's not isolated. He's walking with them in partnership and unity. So I guess a question that came out of this is, how would you feel if a stranger told you to do your job differently? You've been doing this job for your whole life. Your father's done this job 
and then suddenly this guy who you've you've met but like, you don't really know him too well and he's like oh you know just just do this do this differently and be like i don't know say you're a bricklayer you're building a wall someone that you know but like you don't really know too well they come up and they say oh you actually need to do it this way um yeah what kind of thoughts and feelings would that evoke for you guys confused i mean yeah. a stranger i don't know just like do it this way i'd be like yeah no. i'd be a bit annoyed part of me yeah because well, it depends if they know more than you then fair enough listen to them but if they don't then like who do they think they are to tell you what to do yeah no definitely i think you both kind of got it on there it's yeah it's kind of quite weird because you think okay i've been studying this i've been doing this you know my whole life why can someone else come into my profession and tell me to do it this way especially looking at something like fishing you know you can see in verse five you know simon answered master we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything um and there's this idea that you know if there's no fish then coming back like 10 minutes later there's probably not going to be any more fish but this is where trust comes in and this story of the calling of the first disciples is quite well known but it's really quite deep and meaningful when you look into it there's this idea of just innate trust in jesus even though it seems odd you know you think the fish aren't going to care whether the net's on the right hand side of the boat or the left hand side of the boat but we see here that simon is obedient he says but because you say so i will let down the nets and this obedience from peter is rewarded with the biggest haul of fish that they have ever seen you know we can see in verse seven uh, filled both boats so full that they began to sink this idea that the the amount of fish they pulled up is something that they've never seen before and this miracle is a call for us to partner with the holy spirit because james john and peter under their own guidance under their own skills they caught zero fish they were out there all night they got nothing but with the holy spirit we see this this breakthrough that you know they go out they receive immense immense rewards and this is where the focus shifts to us it's a challenge really where can we partner with god in our life that we aren't at the moment where can we submit to him because ultimately we can do nothing other than what can be done through us but then there's also this you know this idea of trust it can be seen throughout the bible obviously but also especially in proverbs quite a well-known passage proverbs 3 it's a really great proverb by the way i'd recommend reading it all but for now we're going to look at two verses um so yeah verses five and six trust in the lord your god with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and he will make your path straight there's this idea that as a society we we strive to be independent we strive to build everything for ourselves to earn our worth i guess but you know god is saying no just trust me i know exactly what's right for you and i will provide exactly what you need we can see like the nets began to burst and the boats that they began to sink but they didn't sink because god knows exactly what we can handle he knows what we're capable of and i think you can actually really apply that to any hardships that we might be going through right now you know any times where you're struggling just know that you are strong enough to get through it there is nothing that will come into your life that you through god's help will not be able to handle because he always knows what is best for us so yeah i guess just take confidence in that that you know there are no limits to god except the ones that we put on ourselves and you know you've got this concept of not putting god in a box so yeah like just pray those big prayers dream big because god can do more amazing things than we could ever begin to imagine and we must be careful not to confine him not to domesticate him 
um because he is the creator god who made heavens and earth and so much more and just got to really trust in that something that i find quite interesting with a bit of research is the cultural tradition of first century bc so if you look at the 21st century right now you kind of obviously you go through primary school you do your sats and they kind of had a similar thing back then obviously it wasn't reading writing and maths but there was this kind of idea that when you were a child you kind of grew up and there was a point where you could split into two ways you would either go into your family trade which your father had done or you were taken on by a pharisee by a religious leader and you you kind of follow them around and they'd teach you and you'd learn from them but that was only if you're clever enough there would be this kind of i guess level which you had to achieve this like benchmark which you had to pass if you weren't smart enough to be taken on by a pharisee you defaulted into your family's business and we can see actually that you know all these people um you know simon john james they were clearly just in their father's trade they hadn't gone on to become a pharisee so this idea of calling disciples and people having followers wasn't too weird and this is where we can clearly see the character of jesus at play we can see that actually you know if he's not choosing his followers based on some test he's not choosing them based on intellectual ability or social class he doesn't want people who know it all or think they know it all he wants the humble he wants ordinary people because yeah ultimately we are called to humble ourselves and you know through this we can have access into a relationship with god that you know we are not selected we are not in a relationship with god by our own merit as i said earlier you know we can't earn it it's not like you know tick these boxes and then you're on your way it's only by god's grace that we are able to do that god's immeasurable grace and i feel like there's kind of this concept within the 20th century that the disciples were you know superheroes almost they were like incredible men who did great things and that is true but that only came from a partnership with the holy spirit i mean we can see in acts 4 13 so luke wrote acts as well he actually writes you know they were unschooled ordinary men he's literally he's just saying it as it is like they were nothing special the only thing that was special was god because he partnered with them and through that partnership they were able to go on to do great things and yeah there's this kind of idea that we must humble ourselves we must be humbled because ultimately, yeah, God uses everyone, but especially the humble, those who, you know, you might not expect, like, you know, looking back to the judges, you have quite a few female judges, judges from lower classes, people who you wouldn't expect back in that time. And God is saying, no, look, I can use you and I will use you. And that's seen again in Matthew 19, 14, how we're called to come into the kingdom of God like a child, to receive it like a child receives a gift with total humility. Because ultimately, there's nothing that we could ever do to warrant God's love. We don't deserve it in, in no way, shape or form. Yet, out of his immense grace, he pours it out onto us freely. And, you know, that's clearly seen through Jesus. So now, returning back to the passage, we can see that the men, they leave their boats, they pull their boats up. And they follow Jesus. You know, Jesus talks about taking up our cross and following him. And it's not easy. It's it's never going to be easy. Jesus clearly says that, you know, foxes have their holes, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. There's this idea that also in Matthew 7, 13 to 14, you've got the wide gate and the narrow gate. 
the gate is small and narrow and the road that leads to life is hard to pass. But yeah, we have this idea that we are promised eternal life no matter what. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And this eternal partnership with God is what makes it all worth it. So now I wondered what you thought about the disciples and what did they leave to follow Jesus? What were the sacrifices that they made to make this commitment? I think the last line of this passage kind of says it, um, like they left everything and followed him. So I don't think they mean like, you know, I'm going to go give up my hat, but it's just like trusting in him fully, giving their trust to him. Yeah, no, definitely. And also you know back then like they would have been poor they were fishermen and the fact that you know they left their boats they left everything and they chose to you know follow jesus you've kind of got this thinking like oh you know if they've just got this massive haul of fish maybe they would want to you know go to the market sell it make a quick buck but like they don't they just completely commit everything to him and that's the sacrifice that they make we can see through this passage that actually we have as much to learn as peter But where do we even begin to start with that? Well, I think the first thing to do is, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Acts 2.38, repent, believe, be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. We've got to confess that we can't do this without God, that we limit the results, that we are wholly dependent on him. And going back to the Old Testament now, 2 Chronicles 16.9, it reads, the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those fully committed to him. So, you know, we've got this concept that, as Katie was saying, they gave everything to Jesus and that we're called to do the same we're called to give ourselves actually looking back to a couple of weeks ago we're talking about when the Pharisees tried to trick Jesus and they were like oh should we pay taxes and Jesus goes give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's and we had that discussion about how actually if you think of a coin it's stamped with the monarch's head or the emperor's face whatever and so okay you give that back to them but if we look at us we are stamped with the image of God. We are made in his image. So therefore we're called to give ourselves to him. And yeah, just this idea that we, if we make God number one in our life, we've got to put him first above all and then other stuff will fall into place. We've just got to make sure that our eyes are fixed on him and that our priorities are straight. There's also this concept that kind of comes out of this, that as I said earlier, not to limit god because you could imagine that you know if they'd have bigger boats they would have been able to catch more fish and i think that's kind of what the message that's coming out of this is that readiness precedes revival if we live in readiness and expectance of god doing amazing and wonderful things then we'll be rewarded there's this kind of idea that we mustn't limit god we just trust him really i guess and that's seen through isaiah 54 2 I mean, a little bit not so relevant now because it's talking about tents and obviously we don't really live in tents anymore. Um, But it says, enlarge the place of your tent, do not hold back. And it's basically saying, look, just think big. Basically, don't try and limit God. But I think what's really interesting about this passage is Peter's response. We can see in verse eight, get away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. And we must grasp what Peter grasped over these 11 verses. It's essential to have an understanding of what he understood. And you can actually see this if you look back through the translations. So you can see in verse five, he says, master, we've worked hard all night. And that Greek word there is epistates. And that is kind of master. It's a, just like an ordinary term. And it was used quite frequently, just yeah, like just master. But then if we see in verse eight, He says, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. And the Greek word for Lord is curios, 
which is completely different. It's got completely different connotations to Epistates, which is master. There's this idea that Jesus is different, that he is holy and that Peter identifies this. And we can see here that, you know, like all of us, Peter is a sinner. Romans 9.23, for everyone has sinned, all fall short of God's glory. But we can see that, you know, even though we fall short, even though we mess up, that God gives us hope. He gives us forgiveness. You know, you can see here in verse 10, literally immediately after Peter says that, he's like, look, I am sinful. Like, you are holy. I, I cannot do this. But we can see that Jesus is like, don't be afraid from now on you'll fish for people. And actually, if we jump on into the middle of chapter five, we can see verses 17 through 26. There's the story of Jesus healing a paralyzed man. It just clearly shows that, you know, Peter doesn't need to be afraid because in the story of the paralyzed man, we see Jesus, he's teaching and there is a paralyzed man who is lowered down through the roof and Jesus goes to him and he says, look, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees who are sitting nearby don't really like this very much. They're like, who are you to forgive sins? And then Jesus is like, look, I have authority on earth to forgive sins. And he shows them this by healing a paralyzed man. And he says, look, get up and walk. And yeah, this is like the fact that this is immediately after, probably I don't know, within a couple of days, it just really shows that, yes, we are sinful but out of god's great love and immense grace we are redeemed also if we just jump back and now we're going back to verse four here just touching again on the concept of trust you know it's talking about deep water it's not like a quick there and back trip there's this element of trust you know that jesus is calling them out maybe out of their comfort zone um and i think that's also a challenge to us that trust god to greater amounts that even when if it was out of our control that, you know, God is always in control. So the parallel that we saw in verse 10 of do not be afraid from now and you'll fish for people, that's seen again in Romans 9.24, which is an amazing verse. It reads, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. This just slows me down every time. And I'm just like, wow, like no matter what, like I am flawed. I am by no means perfect at all. Yet God out of his immense grace freely chooses to make me right and make everyone right through his son jesus and ultimately what what i want to take away from this is that you know yes we are all sinners we all fall short of god's perfect calling but god makes us right and it doesn't matter what's happened in the past it doesn't matter our background and that can clearly be seen through um the story of levi versus 27 through 32 and levi was a tax collector as you may know tax collectors back then were absolutely hated by roman society they were seen as lying cheating scum basically not one person really liked a tax collector yet we see here that jesus ate with him and spent time with him in spite of that the pharisees didn't like it but it doesn't matter because jesus came to call the lost and in actuality, Levi is Matthew, the writer of the gospel. It's just one example of the amazing reconciliation that can be found through Christ. And while we are sinners, yes, it's okay because you can see in verse 31 to 32 that, you know, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. In the same way, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And, you know, there's this idea that 
it's available to everyone. This is amazing. And it's available to all, no matter your past, no matter what you've done, no matter what you will do, Jesus loves you. And how much, how much does God love you? Well, the fact that God became human, he came down to earth. He became flesh and blood. He lived a perfect life on earth. He went through trials. He went through hardship. He was tempted, as we saw back in chapter four. And he, he came down to earth. He became human and he died a brutal death on a cross for our sins. It was undeserved. He was completely innocent. But it was this action that gives us eternal life. And ultimately, this is really an offer that we can't refuse. The immense love that has been poured out to us through Jesus is life changing. And that is available freely to everyone today, no matter what. Thank you. That's all from me.